Welcome to another Mike Flanders podcast. Today we are in the early stages of December. I think we're December 9, aren't we, Mike? That's correct. And I have a long-time dear friend, Mike Daly, with me. Say hi, Mike. Hey, hello. So this is kind of a fun one for both of us because uh, I knew about Mike before I even moved to the United States. I moved to the United States in, uh, in February 2007, and I was a... Uh, Let's just call it, would you call it a steel, um, um, what, what would be the appropriate word for someone that just loves listening to steel guitar? Uh, aficionado. Yes. How's that? Yes, yes, yes. So it was kind of funny, and I'm going to start this podcast by talking about this because, you know, anybody that falls in love with a specific interest um, or a specific instrument, you you are just, you know, mainlining that instrument and trying to find all the records you love and the specific players that actually turn you on, you know, and, and you and I both know there's a pile of players that in those more old school things that you and I, you know, we appreciate it, but we mightn't fall in love with it as much as the style. And so I was, um, around the mid 2004, 2005, uh, actually from 2002, to be honest, I started doing regular trips to the U.S. and uh, my first one was at South by Southwest Music and uh, I was in Austin, Texas. So I was turned on to not only Texas music but, you know, artists that really moved me emotionally, the songs, mm-hmm. the songwriting. And that was just... Um, and the funniest thing is um, the, each time I would go and then I would uh, collect you know, albums from different friends and, hey, you got to hear this. And I'd come back home and I'd be like the pusher, you know. My friends would be like, what do you got? What do you got? You know, and because they all fell in love with that uh, singer-songwriter Americana kind of thing. In Australian country music, there's a massive um, component of that that falls under the country banner that still will get paid, played on normal country stations. So... So it's not as categorized. No, no, because they have to pay play like Canada a certain content, a, a amount of content that's Australian made, right? So those things like Casey Chambers, you may or may not have heard of her, but oh, yeah. she's mm-hmm. she's kind of huge in in our country and huge in other parts of the world, and um, so that. Um, I would refer her as Americana, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So here in the states. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And at home, it's mainstream. She's country. So uh, and her family were country. They were the Dead Ringer Band and blah blah blah. But anyway, so I think it's an interesting way to start this is because I uh, I was collecting albums and being a at that time I started um, falling in love and I think I bought my first steal in maybe around 2003 or something like that. And what was it? Uh, it was uh, it was oh yeah, of course. It was a the green Lloyd Green Showbud. That's what it was. Uh-huh. And I bought it from the founder of South by Southwest Music that started. Oh, so you bought it in the states. Yeah, I I, I came, I had called my friend Mark Hallman who produced some beautiful records down in Austin, Carol King and Arnie DeFranco and and I rang him and I said to him, dude, uh, I'm looking for th- uh, this kind of setup and this is what I think I need. And he, uh, he called this friend of his who I believe has passed away now and he was a banjo player but he had two Lloyd Greens. And uh, I can't remember what I paid for it but it was not a lot of money. I think it was like 1200 US dollars. It was really cheap. That was a steal. Uh, it was a steal. Uh, yeah. Steal for a steal. Because, yeah. yeah. You know, the, the 70s Lord Greens are very sought after. Yeah, I think it was it's, 74, yeah. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, when I bought it back in, um, um, it was never in its original case. It was actually in a full Fender case. And I, I flew into Sydney on that trip and then back to Brisbane. And they... Customs wanted to open it up because they, what the hell is this? You know, am I bringing some firearm, you know, something, you know, all the bar, all the steel, all the legs and stuff. And uh, when I packed it back up, it wasn't packed properly. So one of the legs had scratched some of the beautiful finish on it. So I got kind of pissed about that. But anyway, it was my fault. Um, so, you know, again, long story short, we, um, so I, I started to wanting to hear music that, um, 
had steel guitar on it that turned that you know turned my button on you know and it was a, a weird thing because um i first fell in love with sam baker um and it was your playing on sam baker's record first obviously the songs were just oh, incredible incredible, uh, incredible backstory yeah, um, yeah, well, incredible you, you, artist. What what's the backstory? I know a little bit, but well, I, I wish I was more uh, historically accurate. But he was traveling through uh, South America, I believe, and uh, there As was the a song Machu Picchu. And, yeah, and and there was a, a terrorist bomb on a train that uh, uh, went off, and a number of the people that were around him died, and he was. He felt the death's presence. He was that close to not being here with us, and they had to life flight him back to Texas. Wow! Um, after they stabilized him, and uh, and out of that came his um, his whole approach to playing guitar because his fingers. So uh, was he already a musician prior to that? Um, he's a Renaissance man. Yeah, he yeah, yeah. he. he I've been to his home in Austin, Texas. He lives on the high road, which is up above Austin. So on his property, you could see all down into Austin. And he, he's he got this beautiful stucco home that he built himself. And so he, and he's a, and he paints, you know. Uh, so he's just a total artist. And anything that he approaches in life, he approaches it with this certain outlook, his own personal view of of his artistic um, yeah uh, any, anything that he does he puts mm-hmm. his own stamp on it well that's probably so Kristen and mark hallman was my introduction to sam mm-hmm. who Kristen's brother ran the, Con- um, the continental club years okay. back mark owns congress house studios so i met Kristen many many years earlier through eric johnson the guitar player as you know i'm friends with eric so um we um she said to me Hey, uh, this particular day off, she borrowed her her um, sister's husband or her sister's um, um, RV. We all jumped in this RV and we went. We drove out to Art, Texas, A R T, Texas, mm-hmm. and met Bill Worrell. Oh yeah. Okay, so that that will then tell you why how we met Sam. Oh, because they are all interconnected. That's right. You know, and it's, a, it's a, an artist community. Yes, and he's a very famous. Which, is it West Texas artist, you would call him? Uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's how she described him. And so I went out on that property with, with the Lano River running through it. Oh, and, yeah. And she handed me Walt Wilkins, Sam Baker, and a book of Worrells and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, the weirdest thing was that trip. When I came back, I had several CDs from several people. And I didn't realize when I get back to Brisbane, Australia that I had double copies of Sam and Walt. And anyway, back then, um, you know, CDs were CDs, not like where we're living now, you know, and in the digital world. So I'm flipping CDs in and out of my car. Anyway, obviously, prior to this, I was already a Ryan Adams fan, right? So here, we go. here we go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so Mike Daly, uh, his name appears on Whiskey Town, as we know. And so I see these albums and I see Mike Daly written on all these albums and I'm loving these albums. Then this friend of mine I'm producing hands me a Pat Green record and uh, all of a sudden this name appears again. And I'm thinking, well, this Mike Daly guy's awful busy. And, um, and so I think to myself, I'm coming back to the States on another trip, falling in love with, you know, with this Mike Daly's playing and I'm listening to the beautiful songs of Sam Baker, the beautiful songs of Walt Wilkins, you know, Whiskey Town, Pat Green and all these things. So I'm lining up to think, okay, this is definitely someone I want to listen to and I'm listening to, you know, the style uh, and and it's a style, you know, you've got your own style. And, and then Mike, is it Mike Cass? Yeah, Mike... You talked, spoke to Mike Cass here in town. Yes. So mm-hmm. before coming, uh, this person had hooked me up with Mike for for a reason uh, for himself. He wanted Mike to work on his steel guitar changes. Yes. So I bought over this big old pile of changes, met this Mike Cass, and I said, hey, 
how would I track down this Mike Daly guy? It looks like he lives in New York and he's played on all these tricks. Oh, oh, oh I, I know how to get to him. So within like two days, my cell phone rings and it's Mike Daly from Whiskey Town. In New York. In New York. So <laughs> I'm like, hey, man, how you doing? And I've, I've got this project I'm doing and I love what you're doing. I've only been playing steel for, you know, X amount of years and I really like what you do. I'd love you to play on this record. I'm, I'm just so passionate about this instrument. And, uh, and I said, man, what you did on that, you know, <laughs> Pat Green record is incredible. He goes, uh, that's not me. And I'm like, really? No, no, no. no. He said, uh, that's the Nashville Mike Daly. Oh, I sort of said, there's more than one Mike Daly. He said, there's three. And there you go. <laughs> yep, one from Texas. Yep. San Marcos, Texas. He's been in the Ace in the Hole band, George Strait's band. He was, I believe he was in the band before George Strait was ever the lead singer of wow. that band. Because that once George Strait got his record deal, that band has been with him ever since. Uh, but yeah, that's that's Mike Daly. And then yeah. the Mike Daly from New York, who I believe now lives in California. He does. And producing he does. and such. Well, songwriting too, like yeah. Lana Del Rey, all kinds of stuff. So I actually mm -hmm. did get to meet him. Um, I worked on uh, that Siobhan Magnus American Idol record. And uh, her and I had a meeting at Disney. And... Um, I'm sitting in with the head of creative or whatever her name, you know, it's this Donna or whatever her name was. And, and she says, oh, you're from Nashville. You, do you know Mike Daly? And I'm like, <laughs> which one? You know? And she said, huh? And he was in the next office. Really? Yes. So I got to, uh, we got to talk and it was. So you've met him now. I finally, I met okay. him several, five or six years mm -hmm. back. And, uh, and that was that. But, but anyway, um, I think the funny thing about this conversation is um, I obviously became a, a, a fan of Mike's playing. Moving to Tennessee in 2007, I hunted him down and we worked on a bunch of projects together. A lot of, a a lot lot, of stuff A together. lot of stuff together. Became good friends, not only also to know that we have the same birth date, um, June 11. And, um, and then let's fast forward because I think uh, – well, actually, no, let's not fast forward yet – Let's talk about, you talk about your experience with Walt, which led to Pat Green. I think that's and, a great and story. And led to Sam Baker. Yeah. Yeah, I met Walt. Walt had moved to town. And uh, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, uh, I was at the Musicians' Union, which has an alley that runs behind it. And there's studios on the other side. This is in Music Row when there was a, a real Music Row in, yes. in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, that's a whole other story. It is. Um, and uh, I was talking to a fiddle player friend of mine, Tim Lorish, mm -hmm. and Tim was saying he had met this songwriter that had just moved from Austin, Texas, Walt Wilkins, mm -hmm. and he says, I, I believe you two would get, get along just fine. And here, out of the blue, comes Walt Wilkins walking down this alley, a guitar with no case on his shoulder, and yeah, this is true. And, and Tim's like, I can't believe it. Walt, come over here. And so um, we uh, were introduced by Tim. Walt was going to play at the Bluebird, the songwriter's heaven here in Nashville, uh, a short time later, maybe a week later or so. So he invited me to come down and just sit in, which is totally Walt. Yeah, right. No Which rehearsal. Walt is, Walt is such a heartfelt, off-the-cuff person, spirit. Uh, so I went to, with not a rehearsal, I went to the Bluebird and played a uh, songwriter's night. So I don't, I don't know if we had a drummer at that point. We had Nick Pellegrino on bass and Tim Lorsch on fiddle, and I sat in on steel. And uh, he threw some songs at me that I just, by instinct, uh, grabbed hold of. And at the end of the night, Walt was like, let's go in the studio and cut some of this stuff. And so that became um, Walt's band that we ended up, Walt had, he was in town for 10 years, and he had uh, writing deals with uh, BMG uh, for the longest time and Curb Music. And between those two writing deals, we probably recorded four albums and probably 
50, 60 demos, songwriting demos for songwriting demos for other people. So, and then Walt started a production company, and that's how um, we recorded uh, Sam Baker's first two records as part of, under the umbrella of that production company. Um, And through the songwriting demos, Walt introduced me to Pat Green, because Pat Green always put a Walt Wilkins song or two on his records. And it came down. It came time for the Wave on Wave on Wave record, mm-hmm. and Walt had a lot of demos that him, that Pat Green and his producer Don Gaiman um, were listening to, and I was on every single one of those songs. Yeah. And so, besides picking out a couple songs, uh, rapped and, uh, and another couple songs for the um, Wave on Wave record. Um, Pat Green said, man, I love your steel player. Maybe he can come record with us. So that was my introduction to Pat Green. And then for the next, golly, four or five years, whenever I wasn't working with Hank Jr., Pat Green would fly me to Austin, and then I'd go out and work with Pat Green. And I ended up working on three Pat Green records, uh, Wave on Wave, Lucky Ones and Cannonball. Love Lucky Ones. I think Lucky, oh, Ones, Lucky was Ones was the, was the first one I, I heard and then I went yeah. back to, yeah. Yeah, Lucky Ones yeah. was a strong record. Oh, yeah. Killer songs. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and Don Gaiman produced that one as well. Yeah, right. right? Wow. If, if folks aren't familiar with Don Gaiman, he... Uh, do you know who are you familiar? Cougar Mellencamp, uh, am I yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, he did all the Mellencamp yeah. stuff that were okay, hits, yeah. and and REM, killer uh, stuff. Yeah, B fifty twos. Did he? Uh, yeah, oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, uh-huh. okay. Yeah, he has a, uh, but, but that's who was uh, producing Pat at the time. Well, that's the same kind of fabric too, isn't it? That mm-hmm. that Midwestern oh. stuff he did on um, Cougar. I mean, that oh, was yeah. brilliant stuff. You know, Paper and Fire. Oh, the I first time it. I heard that song, oh. Paper and Fire, I was on. I-71, coming home from Columbus to Cleveland. And it was on the radio, and there was a bunch of static. So I was on I-71, and I pulled off the road on an interstate to listen. just to listen to this song, Paper and Fire. I couldn't, I couldn't believe what killer was happening. Killer writer, killer. Mm-hmm. I was born in a small town. Mm-hmm. And that was all big hits back home mm-hmm. for us, too, you know. Wow, that's, that's kind of cool. I, when I was working with Don Gaiman uh, on those records, I told him, and he was a very humble person, very quiet. But I said, really, that song, Paper and Fire, with Kenny Aronoff, oh, and, and Crash and Snare, but then it yeah. had accordion, yeah. and it had fiddle on it, yeah. right? Yeah. And I said, that became the blueprint for country music in the late 1990s. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, making, making sure that snare is up front. Yep. Bringing in uh, B3 and fiddle yeah. um, over rock kind of yeah. foundations, you know? Cool. I said, you were doing it. Well, and you listen to the, um, I don't know if you saw the documentary, but I mean, I knew the stories and I'm sure you did about Kenny and how Kenny, you know, wanted to record on the first record and Keltner did, didn't he? Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but he, he wasn't going home. He was going to sit there and watch what Keltner did. And mm-hmm. and then now he's had this incredible career. You know, I've, I've never, have you? No, I've never met Kenny. No, no. But what um, a player. I mean, yeah. My God. So, so this is this is some of the history, and these are the you know the exciting parts of what we get to do um, on rare occasions, right? <laughs> but it's the love for an instrument that is extremely technical, and uh, I'm going to drive to a, 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 another situation before we get to another situation. So, um, you know, we talked about the guitar that I bought. And it was called a Lloyd Green guitar, um, purely because of the way it was set up. So, correct. That's they call them a Lloyd Green because it's Lloyd Green setup. And mm-hmm. people that don't know steel guitar have no idea when we say setup, do they? Uh, no, they don't. No, <laughs> but but there there is a story. Um, if if people can visualize, the steel guitar has two necks on it. Mm-hmm. And um, one neck traditionally was was tuned to the E ninth and had a pedal set up that really helped you facilitate the what would be considered um, uh, production wise uh, 
that was a sound of, of country, country music, music on the radio. Yes. Um, the back neck is a C6, was tuned to a C6, a much lower inversion. Uh, and it was set up more for swing and jazz. Mm. Uh, and Buddy Emmons became yeah, and, the and, king of that and, neck, oh, didn't absolutely. he? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. along with with yeah. so many other people, yeah. but but Buddy was the. No, well, Buddy set the created also the, oh. the the pedal and lever technology, didn't he? Well, it, he um, he helped standardize it. Yeah, there was a a lot of people all over the from from the west coast to the east coast that were trying to figure out yeah. how to how to minimize how to just get two necks on a steel guitar instead of four. Because some of the old, if you look at the swing those players, those and stuff. Yeah, if you building. look at the, if you look at those guys, they may have had they were standing up because there wasn't pedals at the time, and they may have had a Fender made a guitar that had four necks on it, for and each neck had a different tuning, and you could switch from neck to neck depending on what chord you wanted to to, to play around Jeez. in a song, and people were trying to keep all those tunings in mind. But cut the the actual weight of the guitar down, you know, and and so that's when the pedals came into vogue. Um, and then Lord Green took it one step further. He yeah. realized during his career that um, his studio career, which is massive, I mean, you start twenty five thousand albums. Yes, yeah. uh, where did mm-hmm. he start? Nineteen sixty two or something, and, and never stopped recording. It's still recording to this day. He realized that, and all his. Uh, um, the way uh, um, what he was recording, he was never using the C6th neck. So he went to Shot Jackson um, at Shoba Guitar Company here. Uh, at, the, at that time, it was uh, on Lower Broad here in Nashville. And he had Shot take off the strings, the headstock, everything on the C6th. And so now he had a guitar that had a front neck and nothing on the back neck. And he put a pad there to make it comfortable, and um, and that became. And, and they then, joked about it, didn't they? They yeah. said he'll oh, be back in a week. That's yeah. right. Yep. That's right. Shot Jackson says, "We'll just keep these parts here. You're going to be mm. back in a yeah. week." Yeah, yeah. And and Lloyd never went back to having two necks on his guitar, and then the Showbud made the, the Lord Lloyd Green, Green model, model, yeah, which was um, uh, a single neck on a double frame. The double frame seems to help um, uh, resonance, um, sustain, uh, and it's very comfortable to play yeah. be- because you have that second neck there yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That, that you can not rest your your elbows on, but it, but it just gives you a more solid yeah, guitar yeah. To, to work with, uh, and then... Uh, has minimal changes compared to today's. Some players have on their E ninth. Well, even Russ Paul and they no. his, his emails two pedal. <laughs> right, because he's gone. Uh, I don't know. Has he put any more than two pedals? Uh, right. I don't know. If I don't know. I I, the last time I saw his setup was two pedal. Yeah, you know. He's, but he's uh, that's a whole different brain, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Well, and the and the reason we I drove down the Lloyd Green. So, um, so I come to town. I'm I. In within one week, go to the Tennessee Steel Association and sit down. I walk into the bathroom. There's Buddy Emmons. I only ever got to say hello. That was it. But I got to say hello to Buddy Emmons. I go and sit. There was one seat free, and I go and sit right next to Jeff Surratt. And, um, oh, my God, I can't remember his name. Um, Not Lord. No, who passed away, who created the Packer seat. Uh, Dwayne Mars. Dwayne Mars. Who had Mars guitars, as you know, and just was switching across to show pro. Mm-hmm. And I had seen a Dwayne Mars guitar on the internet from Australia, 2006, and thought, when I get there, I'm going to get this guy to build me something. Because for some reason, I could never really, really... Um, I loved my show bud. Keeping it in tune was a little difficult. But it was probably more my playing than keeping it in tune. Now I realise, you know, you know, twelve years later. Um, but I, I was doing a big job for somebody. I had a cash flow, and I ordered. I went and put down a payment on that guitar. Um, that that is double O eleven that I use now. That one there. Yeah, yeah. That's double O eleven. I didn't realise it was that old. Yeah, I bought that in two thousand seven, and. 
the reason I met Lloyd Green was not because I asked to meet Lloyd Green. Jeff Surratt and Dwayne Mars said to me, we would love for you to meet Lloyd and Lloyd to sign this guitar because, you know, Lloyd had, was it double, 001 or triple O one or whatever. Uh, yeah. 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 And, um, so I had double O eleven. Mm-hmm. um, Russ Paul guitar. That's, you have, that was number four. Three, wasn't it? No, it's four. It's four. Yep. And, um, so I went, um, I didn't really give it any more thought and, and, and to be perfectly honest, I really did not fully understand the body of work or his whole career. I knew that he was a legend, um, but probably more of an untouchable legend, you know. Fast forward, the guitar gets built. I had I was hanging out with Dwayne like every couple of weeks if I had some free time or after work on a Friday, and it was quite a drive oh, out oh, there yeah, back then, you know. And uh, I've got CDs and recordings of a bunch of lessons and things that he would teach me. So I got to spend the last year of his life studying with him and understanding the inventions. The people that would ring him while I was there were like outstanding. And uh, funny things like he'd go, hey, uh, here's a lick, Mike. You need to learn. Oh, you need, you don't have this change. He'd flip the guitar upside down. Put a rod in, yeah. five minutes later, the change is there. It was just like unbelievable, no. you know. And, um, but. Dwayne was a wealth of knowledge. I, mean, I mean, he was at Showbud from, I know. from the get go. So right? I, um, I, I um, go home Christmas time, 2007, eight, and he passes away that year that I. So I got to spend from February pretty, pretty much till, you know, till he started getting sick again. But I don't even think he. He was sick when I even got on a plane. I think it was that cancer they had in his eye or whatever. Yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, um, so weirdly enough, I'm working away on 18th Avenue where the old studio used to be, right? right? Which you're familiar with. And oh. um, we're talking music row to our listeners. A knock on the door and I open it up. It's Lloyd Green. And I'm like, whoa, okay. I don't have a camera. I don't know what to do. I run. You, a... you didn't invite him. No, he just knew where I was. Somehow, I can't even remember why or how. And I don't even think I was expecting him because it was a shock. I remember it was a shock. There was a friend of mine that was writing across the street, and I rang it. Ran across to her. She was a writer that Australian girl that was writing with one of our guys, and she had a camera. Uh, and so I got her to take the photo of me and Lloyd. It's still on that <laughs> website. So that's how I met him. Now let's fast forward a couple of years, right? Same room. What happens? Oh, the same room. Um, the same scenario, but only it happened to me. Yeah. I, I mean, I knew Lloyd uh, 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 in passing, mm-hmm. um, but I had just put, a record together, uh, a record called Rock of Ages uh, that features uh, steel guitar versions of 70s rock classics. Yeah. And I had just got it mastered and I had 20 comp copies and I came to Mike's studio to give him a copy to see what he thought of my this record I've been working on for a year. There's a knock on the door, yep. and sure enough, there's Lord Green standing in the hallway, standing yeah. right in the foyer right there. And I had this CD in my hand, and I kind of put it behind my hand. I thought, <laughs> oh, my goodness, we're going to talk steel guitar here. <laughs> and sure enough, and Lloyd, I mean, he's he says, what you got there? What you, what you guys doing? I believe Mike Flanders said something. Well, Mike, Mike has a CD that he wanted to drop on by. Uh, and Lloyd is like, really? Well, let's listen to it. And... He loved I, it. I was uh, shocked, and 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 I thought, oh my goodness, because no one had really heard this yet. You yeah. know, I just had twenty copies, and so we sat down and we listened to about two, three songs, and then he asked me if he could take it home and really digest it, and and there you go. He he really, Lloyd is very forward thinking. Oh yeah. Um, uh, even Super though he even though he started his career has been uh, over fifty years now, um, he is still very in the moment and a very forward thinking, very intelligent player. And he, 
obviously he liked what I did. He got Peter Peter Cooper, who at that point was uh, uh, a journalist, music journalist for the uh, Tennessean here in Nashville. He got Peter Cooper on board and said, "You got to do a, a, a review. A, you got to do a review and, and an article on the, on this CD." So, uh, thanks to Lord, he gave it visibility that uh, um, that I never expected. Yeah, and it started from yeah. When, so I, then, when I didn't even have copies with uh, artwork done, uh, but Lloyd was on board right away. Yeah, and it's like um, a songwriter for the first day coming to Nashville and bumping into Jeffrey Steele or bumping into, uh, you know, yeah, one of the greats. Uh, Craig you know. Wiseman or, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Don Schlitz. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and that's, that's kind of the comparison and... Uh, so then Mike and I, by this point, obviously, as you can gather by now, are, are good friends. And, you know, I've always, um, Mike's got a unique way of um, muting strings and doing different things on the steel that no one's done, which I've very happily borrowed from. Um, and, <laughs> Gladly. Uh, go ahead. And, uh, Please. and funny enough, um, you know, I'm, I get a phone call one day and he's talking about wanting to do another record and... And I'm like, dude, you know, you got to, you know, you're such an incredible musician. Just why aren't you writing the songs? And that's where the next project started. It started yep. from that conversation. Mike Flanders uh, challenged me. Yes. He, he laid it down. He says, he says, you need, he says, I remember this distinctly. He says, if people are going to take you seriously, you can't be doing covers. You've mm. got to write your own material. So with that in mind, he said, Let's. We made up a wish list. That was our yeah. next. He says, yeah. "Why don't you do a duet record? Who would be the players that you would maybe like to um, contribute? Mm. Yeah, invite." And so we made up this wish list, and Lord, yeah, Lord was, was on top of it. Yep, yep. <laughs> From both of our perspectives, it's well, like, we got people we never thought we'd get. Yeah, and we yeah. got excited to people we thought we were going to get. Yeah, <laughs> but but we did. We ended up. The record is called Renaissance, and we ended up. Getting yeah, Lloyd is on the record. I, I duet with Robert Randolph, yep. Greg, Greg Lease, yep. B.J. Cole from England, yes, and uh, Dan Dugmore, yes, which um, is such a sweetheart. Oh Lord! But it started with Lord Green. Yep, Mike Flanders. Mike said, "You write a song that you think Lloyd could play on, and let's record it, and I'll get Lloyd to play on it." He goes, mm. I'll, "I'll make the call. I'll, I'll invite him." So. Uh, I, I recorded one song, and we had to wait. Lord's personal and professional schedule. Um, we we sat in that track for almost six months. Yeah. And uh, but Lord came in and uh, uh, and nailed it. Graced and, it. And that was this. That was the start. Once Lord got on that track, I, I was cutting other rhythm tracks yes. in, the, in that six months. But it still, I did not have any special guests. No. Once Lord came and played on that song, that really legitimized the project. The project, mm -hmm. and that opened doors up for other people to say, "Well, yeah. who else is on this?" Well, I've already got Lord Green, mm -hmm. and people knew that uh, they just had a feeling that this was a legitimate artistic uh, endeavor. Yeah. To um, join in on. To join in on and and uh, yeah, and, then, and then basically, well, and then Mike tailored the songwriting towards the want to certain people then and that's that was the inspiration then and and, and that's and, true and um, the uh the we, we then um reached out to Raikuda, uh and we were close but yeah, we, we missed he was it. too busy yeah we missed the Raikuda <laughs> bit but you still had ryland and and that, and that greg lee's played on and it. greg lee's played it still and, still had a california vibe and greg came and, yep. and did what he does, and Which it was is just like perfect. incredible. And um, I, uh, I had bumped into, I went to the Americana Awards one night. I saw Greg Lee's putting his steel himself in the car, and I'm like, "There's Greg Lee's." So of course, me, I wander over and introduce myself. Put his phone number in my phone. Had had several conversations with him, and that's how we got him, didn't we? That's right. Randolph was two of us were at Randolph to try and get him, and that took six months or yeah, so. Yeah. And, and here I had written this song once. I really got in this mode of putting this yes. record together. I had written a song that was specifically for Robert Randolph. Yes. And I'm like, 
you know, it's too late now. You it, yeah, it, it's it. like here yeah. it is. You know, it's and and once again had to wait on his schedule, uh, his busy touring schedule. Yeah, and and then he hurt his right hand. That's right. And he turned up at the studio with a cast on his right hand. Yeah, and yeah. And, and that's that's correct. But geez, but, and he was he's the most interesting cat. Wasn't he? Oh, he. Yeah. That's a whole different style, all on its oh, own. Oh, Lord, the Sacred Steel yeah. style, yeah. tuning and everything, e- either a twelve or fourteen string universal tuning, but not a universal tuning like some of the country or jazz players. It's all built around uh, uh, a dominant seventh chord. Mm. Not, you know, yeah, the C six has a six tone in it that can be used as a minor chord or a sixth. Uh, the uh, E ninth is obviously mm-hmm. has F sharps in it, and mm-hmm. it has a major seventh. It has a D sharp in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Sacred Steel players, they like those dominant sevenths. Yep. They let, they want to go uh, uh, bluesy sevenths oh, yeah. all the way. Yeah, and, and, uh, and Robert came in the studio, um, plugged in my pedal board, <laughs> used my picks. Yeah, yeah, because did he? he because, yes, because he remember he lost his picks. Remember he, I, I he said he, he said he had to dump out his um, backpack at the airport, and he couldn't find his picks. So he said, "Let me see your picks." And to to people listening, you got to understand that that's the, the individual steel players. I mean, when they wear a banjo players, anybody who wears picks, yeah, molded. You, yeah, you, you you get them curved just so they fit the way you attack the your instrument mm. and you rarely that's, that's you rarely that's, yeah, you, yeah, your you, thumb picks one thing but it's your, no, finger, no, picks. your finger picks you can't really but but yeah. robert is just like man let me see your finger picks and i'm like Whoa. oh god and he put him on and he goes yeah this will be fine and then he sat down and away he went yeah you yeah. don't remember that i don't oh, remember I that well I, you know he i was probably trying to figure out what the tone was that he wanted or whatever yeah. that time. No, no, you know, he, but, he just... He but just, it was just... He was on fire. I mean, it mm-hmm. didn't really matter what happened. He was on fire, wasn't he? Yeah. And he was he was glad to be there, mm-hmm. you know? Oh. So that was fun. Um, I got to be on the session with VJ, which was an interesting one, um, to say the least. Um, yeah, but that turned out good. It, turned out B, BJ Cole is an uh, English steel player, and he came... In the prominence, um, on he's a steel player on Elton John's "Tiny Dancer," mm. and that cemented a, stu- a a studio career. Anytime anyone needed a steel player in London, B.J. Cole became yeah. So he's worked with Sting, he's worked with Dave Gilmore. Um, uh, people like REM went to London record. They used B.J. Cole, right? You know, uh, his his resume is is. Uh, mm. And it was it was an odd session no. without saying the anything you know negative. It was a, an odd session because his brain was unlike any other steel player that I had bumped into. And we're so used to Nashville, aren't we? Uh, oh, everything being so quick, and you know how fast we mm-hmm. work is. You kind of you're moving at a pace, right? And you know mm-hmm. how my pace is sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you're thinking that they're wanting to do and. He was in a whole different headspace, and Mike Webb was there that day. That's right. You know, that was the uh, only that was the only uh, you were of away. the special guest. That was the only session that I was not there for. Mm. Um, he had come to town for Americana Week. That's right. Yeah, and he had come to my house maybe two days prior to the session, and we sat down and just visited, and we really didn't talk about the song that he was going to record. Uh, we touched upon it, but we he wasn't there to rehearse it or anything. He had listened to the Rough Side sent him, and he said he was ready to go. So we just talked general steel guitar and music. Did he yeah. was he familiar with the Nashville number system or not? Uh, I don't remember. If you he know, read a chart or... I, I I don't believe so. No. But he had the he had the song. Yeah, uh, you had already he, he had already emailed it to him yeah. and whatever. Okay, okay. And then I went out on the road and. Uh, when I came back, the he had done he had completed his yeah, track. Yeah. Uh, and just when yeah. Mike says he's out on the road, Mike's been playing with Hank Jr. for twenty twenty four years. Twenty four years. So that's when and, he says on the road. And I was with yeah. Uh, or Travis Tritt or somebody. He was yeah, doing been, a lot of stuff with different yeah, bands. I, but, I, but, I have the the Hank gig, and then I somehow seem to find a few more dates. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> so we did that. Um, 
So Greg Lees, we put that together. Um, you know, Dan Dugmore that lives in town, Mike went to his, his place. Out, out to his studio. Dugmore. Called, called Shabby Road. Sh- yeah, I saw that. So He's good. a huge Beatles fan. Yeah. So yeah, his studio is called Shabby Road. And uh, beautiful out on an acreage horse, oh, horse yeah. farm. And, uh, and uh, people that may not be familiar with that name, um, he played on Joni Mitchell, James Taylor. And Linda Ronstadt. Linda Ronstadt. He played live with Linda, and I don't know if he played with Jackson. Did he ever play with Jackson? I don't know. No, but his history, he played the classic Blue by You solo, and that's where a lot mm-hmm. of people are familiar. He came to town many years ago when Paul Franklin left to go and play with the Dire Straits. He turned up at the right time and sort of slotted into a oh, perfect yeah. marketplace. So, uh, no, and, not and, to take and, and his style, his style of playing, it's beautiful. It was emotional, um, emotional, and. And I think the producers here in town were ready for a change for that to happen. Yeah, to songs. Perfect time for everybody. Mm-hmm. So and his tone, the showbud tone, yes, right? You know, he loves that guitar. Um, so um, and he's got a show pro too now. He does. Um, so we've got. We started with Lloyd. We had Robert, Lee's, Doug Moore, and and BJ. And BJ, mm-hmm. right? And the yeah, rest but- is. We had, uh, and Mike did write a song specifically for Ry Kuda, who we were, t- we, and you played some beautiful Weisenborn on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we sent that to Eric Johnson, and Eric Johnson said, oh, what a beautiful track. Um, it was just way out of our price range. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't afford that solo. <laughs> but it didn't matter. No. Because it all worked for the best, because yeah. that's the solo that Dan Dugmore. I know. Um, it, it we did um the song we are talking about is we did a version of uh Stevie Ray Vaughan's Lenny. Yes. And uh I struggled with that song for almost a year because I did not want to pretend or ape Stevie Ray Vaughan. It was like I can't go there. So I kept going round and round on the steel guitar. I'm gonna make this into a steel guitar instrumental. Then one day I just picked up uh, an acoustic of uh, the Weasel board. And all of a sudden, it made sense. I'm like, this. I'm, yeah. t- I'm taking Stevie Ray Vaughan's song, but it, I'm taking it out of its element. It's in a whole new world right now, and that's yeah. what I needed to make to record it. Yeah, I, right. I was not about to make covers. I wanted to. Yes. If I was going to play this song, I needed to take it in another direction. Yeah. And then Dan Dugmore came in with his Blue Bayou Showbud, yeah. running through a Fender Twin with a 15-inch speaker and JBL yep. that he has had ever since his California days. Yep. And uh, that made the track. Yep. Made the track. Sure did. And there's a video on YouTube. Oh, yeah. You can check that out. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So yeah. you can find Mike Daly on Facebook. You can find Mike Daly on YouTube. Mm-hmm. There's and there's a Facebook page, Mike Daly Steel Man. Steel Man. Yeah. So, it has uh, all my videos and yeah. and, and different uh, videos from... Uh, I have a band now that we're playing out once a month here in Nashville. And it was named <laughs> by an Englishman. A disgruntled Englishman. <laughs> um he saw a video clip of of the band that we have, and we were doing Edgar Winter's Frankenstein. Uh-huh. And obviously, this man was a, a pure, a steel guitar purist. And after viewing my clip, he called my band a load of rubbish. And so that's, that's where it stuck. I did not know where that come from. Yeah. I see your posts and stuff, yeah. but and, I, and I that's just right. And so, yeah, and but. so, the next time we played out, we just made light of it. And now people call the band a load of rubbish. Yeah, he said, he said, this is a load of rubbish. If this is what Nashville is churning out, they can keep it. I think I do remember yeah. seeing that. I, 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 yeah. I kind of thought it was a joke. But, uh, uh, okay. Well, I mean, yeah. it, to him, he was serious. Yeah, right. And then I just looked at it and laughed. I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. because that, yeah. not mean-spirited. Number no. one, it, it, that's a very English way of... Yeah, what's a load of rubbish? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, the funny thing about the load of rubbish is um, I've graced several of the load of rubbish gigs <laughs> and uh, uh, I would have hated to be Mike on one night. So I turn up um, and 
I walk in the room and there, lo and behold, is Lloyd Green Once again. and Russ Paul sitting at the bar. So I go up and say hi to them and I'm with my youngest son, Caleb. And so uh, I go and grab us some food and a drink and whatever. And then Mike comes in and I said, and uh, you looked kind of pale. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was... Hey, uh, Bruce Boughton was there. Bruce. Pete, Pete Finney was there. Smiley. Um, Smiley Roberts, Tony Paoletta. It was a steel player's night. I know, man. And then I just went up on stage and I thought, well. I'm you the, gave it to us. I'm, I'm the one that invited him. I yeah, said, well, and, I mean. And uh, I'm the only one that can play these songs, so yes. here we go. Well, I took a photo. I think I would have loved to get Lloyd, but Lloyd left early. and uh, But I got a photo of you, Smiley, and Bruce. And, right. And I've been, you know, as you know, we've been. Bruce has now moved over to... Yeah. 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 He's close close by. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but you're talking about the greats here. I mean, that's a room of the most prestigious steel guitar players in the world. Absolutely. Without a doubt. From from artistic, from, yeah, from Lloyd, 50 years, from Russ Paul, who is a revolutionary, to Bruce Boughton, who is the most... I've told Bruce this, and he just like, Mike, you're being too kind, but if you just run the numbers... Bruce is Boughton is the most heard steel, steel player, player in the world. Because of Garth Brooks. Because he's mm. on every single Garth Brooks record, just yes. about every single Garth Brooks song. Yes. Except for the Chris Gaines stuff. Yes. Right? And that's 120 million records. That's right. At least. Yes. And, and counting. Yep. He's on every single uh, Brooks and Dunn record. Mm. That's 40, 50 million records. And then he's on the classic record that you told me I need to buy and listen to. Ah. Which uh, is Rick, Ricky Skaggs. Yes, that's right. Highway Forty Blues. Yeah. Yes, um, and it's only him and Lloyd, right, on that uh, whole y- record. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Lloyd played seemingly. Ricky kind of divided it up. Lloyd played the ballads, and Bruce Boughton played Speed the, the, the up kind of stuff, the yeah, which is amazingly stuff. good at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Highway Forty Blues. Um, uh, Country Boy, which yes. wasn't on Highways and Heartaches yeah. on the next record, but yeah, that's Bruce there. Uh, you know, Bruce mm. played on the Foster and Lloyd stuff, uh, Kathy Matea. So yeah, if you just add up the numbers, oh, so, yeah. somewhere there's about 200 million copies I know. Of, of music out there and that Bruce is, that people have bought and Bruce, they're listening to Bruce Bowden. I know. And I, so I, I was picturing you as an ice cube about to melt on stage under the hot lights. <laughs> I'm like if I was Mike, I don't know whether I would be in the car by now. Oh, no. Um, it was like, like I said, uh, yeah. I got I, up on stage and I looked around and, and the band's all there and I said, well, yeah, it's time to do it. Well, know? it's not like, you know, it's a new instrument to you. So, uh, I used to get nervous when I was when I wasn't confident. Mm-hmm. You know, now it doesn't seem to matter as much anymore. You, the better you get, the more confident you right. get. And it's mm-hmm. as we all know, it's an extremely difficult toy to master, isn't it? So, Absolutely. So, but, uh, I think we've covered pretty much everything we wanted to talk about, wouldn't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Been wonderful, Michael. I think um, pick a song that I'm going to um, import into my. Pro Tools system and uh, and play it at the end of our podcast. Pick one that you want on Renaissance. Well, I mean, you should do the Lloyd Green song. We'll do the Lloyd Green yeah, song? Yeah, please do that. Okay, we'll do that. And the title of the Lloyd Green song is? Is MD.LDG. There you go. <laughs> and you can also see a video on YouTube. Yes. On mm-hmm. that one, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, go and enjoy watching Mike Daly play. I, I would classify him as one of the Nashville's greats and... Uh, and him himself is uh, an innovator, and that's what turned me on to his playing right at the get-go. Mike does not play like anyone else. He's very individual. So enjoy Mike, follow Mike, and uh, put the glasses up every 11th of June every year for both of us. <laughs> Got that right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> See you later. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.